This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Hangout in the Holy Land, Land Grant Holy Land's flagship podcast. I'm your host, Gene Ross, joined not by Josh Dooley this week, joined instead by my Land Grant Holy Land co-managing editor, Matt Temanini. Matt, you've been on these airwaves a few times, made some cameos out here. Good to have you back on the pod this week. I appreciate it. Josh is out, like, living in the mountains or something this weekend, so I'm happy to jump in and try to fill his enviably large shoes. Yeah, I believe Josh came back into the world of telephone service right as Ohio State took the lead in the fourth quarter. So he all saw what he that. needed to see. Yeah, yeah, pretty much all his is his doing that Ohio State won well, this game. But I got to tell you, I got to tell you, at halftime, I realized that I, the reason Ohio State struggled in the first half was actually my fault. I forgot, like I did in the, in the Notre Dame game, to put my lucky Buckeye necklace on. So I corrected that for the second half. So I'm not saying it's because of me, but I'm kind of saying it's because of me that they were able to turn things around in the second half. So Yeah, the, the Land-Grant Holy Land ecosystem has a lot to do with what happens on the field 100%. for Ohio State, as, we, as we all know. But yeah, lots to uh, <laughs> lots to talk about in this one. Obviously, Josh only got to see kind of the, the only the good parts of Ohio State, missed all of the bad. So honestly, a great day for him. But wouldn't get to talk about as much as we'd like to this week, so I brought Matt on to seek out to watch the game. And Matt, it's kind of fitting to have you on on this episode because I feel like of our of our land grant Holy Land constituents, me and you have kind of been the most outspoken, I would say, about the the lack of good play calling from Ryan Day this season, and really just as a whole. And that was uh, you know kind of the the large story of the game through really the first three three and a half quarters or so. Uh, just the, a very odd game plan from Ohio State, playing very I wouldn't even say conservative, just really like odd it was a lot of you know we've we've seen all the stuff now is the bubble screens the the very obvious running plays just really don't understand what was going on out there at all 
here's here's what I've kind of come to. I think what the what we are seeing when Ryan Day chooses to run these power formations and tries to do these bubble screens, which are essentially run plays. I, I think what he's really trying to do is flex his muscles and prove that the whole discord of or discourse of his team being a finesse team is not true. Here's the thing. It kind of is. And I'm not saying they're a soft team because I think there's a difference between being soft and being a finesse team. Last year, the rub on Ohio State was that they were soft. And I think watching the Oregon game, watching the game um, against that team up north and then even against Utah, even though Ohio State won that game. You could say that along the lines of scrimmage, they were soft. I don't think that's necessarily the case this year, especially on the defensive line, but you know, to a lesser degree on the offensive line. But what I think Ryan Day is doing is I think he's getting sucked into this like pissing match of having to show, I don't know who, whether it's the media, whether it's um, other coaches, whether it's Jim Harbaugh, whether it's recruits, that his team is not soft. And instead of actually playing to the strengths of the absurd amounts of talent that he has at his disposal on the offensive side of the ball... He is trying to say, look, we are a run first team. However, you're not a run first team. You have potentially the greatest conglomeration of wide receiver talent in the history of college football, perhaps the best quarterback in program's history. And you are trying to run the ball in obvious running situations from obvious running schemes and obvious running alignments. And it just doesn't work. I completely understand that you want to have balance between passing the ball and running the ball. I am not saying that they should be a, an air raid offense, but instead of trying to run the ball to set up the pass, which does not work, uh, we've seen that throughout the year, whether it was Notre Dame, whether it was Iowa, whether it was Penn State, they were selling out to stop the run because despite the fact that you have all of this talent, they could read what Ryan Day was calling. Instead, what you should do and what actually worked in the second half, which is why Trevion Henderson had a 41-yard touchdown run, was pass to set up the run. Make them stop you throwing the ball because you can complete the pass basically anytime you want. Then you run. So I don't understand if it's just him trying to prove that everybody is wrong about his team or if he's trying to instill something different from what he's actually seeing in in. Uh, in practice, or if it's just to show Jim Harbaugh that he wasn't born on third base. I don't know what it is, but it's dumb and it needs to stop. Um, So I I don't know. Maybe maybe you disagree, but that's what's going on. But to me, that's the only thing that I can think of that would explain why you can go from what looked to be just essentially beating your head against a wall, calling plays that don't work, to then in the second half of the fourth quarter, just turning it on and doing what we all were calling for the whole game and it working like a hot knife through butter. Yeah, the the biggest issue I have with Ryan Day and his play calling specifically is just his unwillingness to change really before halftime in any game. He seems to come into every game with with a set plan and no matter how it's working on the field, he doesn't he doesn't sway from it until like he really needs to and like the game is actually on the line in like the second half. Um, and and it's it's quite frustrating, you know, against a better team than Penn State. And I think Penn State was was really good in this game. Yeah. I think they are a solid football team. Uh, against a team like Michigan, they might not have been able to come back in that one if, by the time that they managed to figure out what to do on offense. But yeah, like you said, I, I think he is just trying to he's trying to work the way that like NFL teams work, where you do you know establish the run to set up the pass, and that works for a lot of teams. But with the way, like you said, Ohio State is built with all this talent at, at wide receiver and even at, at running back too. But the wide receiver talent we know is just unmatched around the country with the, the guys they have out there. Um, they do need to, to pass to set up the run. You see uh, Penn State coming out here 
looking to stop the run. They know that Ohio State watched that Michigan film and saw how easy it was for Michigan mm-hmm. to run against them. They figured Ohio State was going to come out and try to run the ball with Mayan Williams and Trayvon Henderson, and they did. And instead of uh, adjusting, like you said, they kind of used those bubble screens as their way to kind of attack a boundary run. Their runs up the middle were uncreative, and they were running kind of pitch plays against an eight-man box, which was, it was silly in its own right. But, yeah, I think this team does have to go kind of the opposite direction. You have to throw the ball, get these guys to kind of take a couple steps back on defense from the line of scrimmage, and then once they do that, you can open up the run game. And, yeah, like you said, the second that that started happening, Ohio State started throwing vertical passes. The the defense backed up a little bit, and Trayvon Henderson immediately broke a couple big runs, including that long 41-yard touchdown. So I was kind of, you know, coming into these last two games now, Penn State and Iowa, this, this Ohio State run game has not looked good at all. And I think that's a big reason for it. I think they're trying too hard to kind of run things the opposite way that they should be doing them because that is the traditional sense of how you run an offense in college football. But I think in in today's game, and especially with how this Ohio State team is built, I think they have to run it backwards. I think you have to use your Heisman candidate quarterback with all of his five-star wide receivers and go out there, pass the ball, and that'll open up the running lanes for the rest of the guys. But yeah, it's... It is frustrating to watch these these first half of games where Ryan Day comes in with a, a set game plan and doesn't sway from it regardless. And the 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 just like the predictability of it all, like the fact that they ran like a bubble screen or two on on seemingly every drive, the run game, which we we've talked about, like when you saw Ohio State come out and you saw their formation, everyone watching the game knew what they were going to run. And if we know that, the, the idiots sitting on their couch watching the game, I'm sure Penn State's defense could recognize that. If if the running back was lined up behind C.J. Stroud, he, they were running the ball. And if he lined up in the shotgun next to him, it was a pass. And it's I don't know what happened to any of the you know the creative the creativity and the the differing of formations from the first couple of weeks in Ohio State's run game. But for the last two weeks, that's that's almost gone entirely now. Yeah. And you mentioned the fact that there's usually a difference between the first half and the second half. And before I say what I'm going to say, I want to make it very clear that I think Ryan Day is an excellent coach. I think that he is a superb offensive mind. I think he's a great head coach. I think he's actually an even better human being. I do not want anybody else to be Ohio State's head coach for the foreseeable future. However, I kind of think I'm starting to think that the reason that Ryan Day doesn't make in-game changes in the first half and has to wait and we start to see things different in the second half is because he might not actually be able to do those things. And it might be Kevin Wilson who is actually the one to install these changes for the second half. I have written recently even that. There's a reason that when you break down film, it's from the all 22. And that's because you see everything. I, one of the many reasons that I don't think a head coach should call plays. I also just don't think inherently it makes sense to have the head coach doing that. But we don't need to get into that here. I've written multiple articles about that. But the other part of it is having the person calling plays up top, seeing everything, not distracted by all of the hullabaloo on the sideline, actually makes sense. That way they can diagnose things, they can see a better view of what the opposing team is doing, whether that's an offense or defense, and then you can make the changes. So I I just feel like maybe the reason that they're not making changes in the first half is because Ryan Day can't, and and not because he's not capable of it, just because of the way that... Well, maybe it is because he can't keep, he's not capable of it because obviously other people can do it. But like, I think it might just be Kevin Wilson is the one making the changes and installing different stuff for the second half because they he finally gets to talk to Ryan Day. And we heard last week during the press conferences, him kind of explaining the play calling is that you don't want a lot of talking going on during play calling. That's because Ryan Day's the head coach and he's got other things to do. So he can't have a bunch of people talking. 
take it off of his plate. Let someone else call the plays. I didn't want it to be Kevin Wilson, but I'm fine with it being Kevin Wilson moving forward. Um, it, it just seems crazy to me that this is what we're doing. And we're still talking about a 44 to 31 win. Like this is a big win on the road against a really good opponent. And yet we're still dealing with the fact that for three and a half quarters, it looked like they were stuck in quicksand. Yeah, obviously, you know, we're, we're starting with the negatives here. There's going to be a lot of positives to come. But, you know, these were just the, the glaring issues in this game and the reason why it was more frustrating than it should have been through through three and a half quarters or so. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that they're they're capable of making these changes. They obviously are. They keep coming out of halftime with at least, you know, a little bit of different strategy. This time it really took until the fourth quarter. But usually they come out of the second half looking well, a lot better. I will um, just I, say I will just say, though, they only had one offensive possession in the third quarter and it wasn't a good one. They had to punt. But like part of the reason that we didn't see any changes in the third quarter is because they only had like three plays and it, it might have not been a three and out, but it was it was one short possession. So part of that is just time of possession issues. Otherwise, they might have seen something pretty good in, in the third quarter uh, ahead of what we saw in the fourth. Yeah, that's entirely fair. I, I saw a tweet uh, during the game that that some put out that said Ryan Day would be like an offensive mastermind if he was just ten percent dumber, and I think that is honestly a hundred percent true because like I think he just <laughs> like I think he just overthinks himself and like he thinks that like he's adjusting to the adjustments that the defense is going to make before the defense makes them, but like they're not making they them, don't so don't them. change. So like we watched in this game, every time Ohio State would throw the ball over the middle, they got fifteen to twenty yards, and you know you keep thinking that they're going to adjust, so you switch things up, but they never adjusted. You could have just kept doing it, yeah. and they just didn't do it. So that. That was honestly probably the most frustrating part of it. It's not like, you know, they tried doing some other things and Penn State was stopping it. Every single time they threw the ball over the middle, it was wide open. There was no one there. Whether it was to, you know, Marvin Harrison Jr. or Cade Stover, no matter who it was, that the middle of the field was wide open for them the entire game. They weren't even trying to defend it. They were daring Ohio State to run into these eight-man boxes. They were daring them to throw it to the outside on those plays behind the line of scrimmage, and it wasn't working, and they just weren't taking what the defense was giving to them. And I think that's why it was more frustrating than anything is just because you know you saw in this game what they could have done against this defense if they just played to their strengths Mm -hmm. and threw the vertical passes, especially over the middle, and they just weren't doing it. Yeah, I mean, there's that old saying, like, keep doing it until they stop you. They they couldn't stop you, and yet we didn't do it. So yeah, it was like it was like when Oregon when they when they lost to Oregon, and Oregon kept ran the same run play three times and it worked every single time. Ohio yeah. State just doesn't do that. They don't they they think that they they like to make it harder. They don't want it to be too easy. Um, so they try to make it a little bit more difficult. But and now that we're kind of we we've got, hit on the tough part. Let's let's hit on the the biggest yeah. bright spot on this offense, which is by far in this game, Marvin Harrison Jr. Oh, what, I thought you were going to say JT Tui Malowa because uh, uh, no, he might have been just, the. Br- that Absolutely. might have been the bright spot on the offense, though. Yes, this this was yeah, that is actually true. This was this will be forever known as the JT Tweedle Lowell game. I just wanted to before we move to the defense, talk about the 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 biggest star on offense in this game, Marvin Harrison Jr. Ten catches, one hundred eighty five yards, um, just a stud. I mean, he was open every single time. He caught every ball thrown his way, pretty much. He was targeted twelve times, caught ten of them. I think one of them was a one of them was an overthrow, and then one of them might have been broken up. I don't remember both of the incompletions, but it just seemed like every time Ohio State needed a big play, Marvin Harrison Jr. was there. There was a, a critical third and ten pickup he had in that fourth quarter, um, and, and just he he's a monster. Like he's done everything that you know. There was a ton of preseason hype around this kid. There was we were all thinking, you know, this there's, there's probably no way he could live up to the amount of hype he's getting, but he's he's done all that and more. There's people that saying he's looking like he could be the best wide receiver in Ohio state history. And it's only really his first full year as a starter. We still have another full year of him, but I mean, he looks, you know, he's, he's Marvin Harrison's kid and he looks every bit like it. Well, except for like six inches taller. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, to me is, if he's not the Bolitnikov front runner, who the hell is, I mean, he's, 
having an unbelievable season in a year where he was supposed to be the number two or even three option. And Emeka Ibuka is having a really good season. He didn't have necessarily a great game against Penn State, although he had six catches for 53 yards, which is fine. Um, but like this was supposed to be Jackson Smith and Jigba's year and every all the attention was supposed to be on him, which was going to open things up for Emeka or Marv. Um, and then Julian Fleming, who the hell knows what he was going to do in that situation. But he has seized this. And I don't know if it's just because JSN has been out or if there's something about all the time that Marv and CJ have worked together, if there's some sort of extra chemistry there, or if it is just because he is an absolute physical freak, both in terms of his athleticism and the things that he can do because of how technically proficient that he is. But he's the best wide receiver in the country. And I, I think putting him and saying he's the best wide receiver in program history is tough just because he's only going to be here for three years and he's going to be going up against guys. And I don't know who stayed for three or four years or whatever, but like he's going to be going up against guys who were there for four years. So his numbers are never going to look as good as some of those other guys. Although the passing offense is much more than it was in the John Cooper era when guys like Joey Galloway and Terry Glenn uh, were racking up numbers. So maybe he will end up having better numbers than all of them. But like, it's hard to argue that he's not the number one weapon on this team and potentially in all of college football as well. Yeah, I think, you know, like we've seen in the past years, the Blitnikoff winner coming for Ohio State is going to be tough just because there is so much talent around here. You know, you look at a guy like like a Jalen Hyatt from Tennessee, which I believe has like 14 or 15 touchdowns on the year, but like he is their guy. Like he is their number one receiver and he's their go-to guy. Like Marvin Harrison Jr. is Ohio State's number one receiver at this point, but they do have, you know, Emeka Agbuka, uh, Julian Fleming, even Cade Stover. They have a ton of weapons to pass the ball around. So yeah, like you said, he's, he's probably never going to put up the stats that like a true, you know, number one receiver in this offense should but it's just because there's so many weapons around here to use so I don't know if he will he'll definitely be a finalist for the Blitnikoff he is definitely if one of if not the best receiver at pure talent wise in the country crazy fast at his speed I mean at his size catches everything thrown to him just, just ridiculous hands everything you could want in a wide receiver uh, everything you can want in a number one target um, I don't know if he'll put up the stats to you know lead the pro the the program and things like that, but pure talent wise, I, I think he's certainly up there. And it's pretty crazy to say coming off a year where Ohio State just had two receivers going to the first round of the NFL draft, you come in this year, you replace them with a guy you're saying could be the best receiver in program history or the best receiver in the country, and it's not the guy that led the team in receiving last year. So just just insane what Brian Hartline's doing with this receiver room, and and it's it's really fun to watch these guys go out there and ball. Yeah, I mean this is what you should be doing with this talent when it comes to passing like you should be putting up 100 yard games all the time you should be racking up touchdowns the fact that ohio state has two guys that are right around 100 yards receiving per game is nuts that's not supposed to happen um and both marv and Emeka are within a couple yards of averaging 100 yards per game and coming up against the likes of northwestern indiana and maryland they very well assuming they can play into the third and fourth quarters of those games uh, should be able to get their averages over 100 yards. I, I think that is something that, you know, it doesn't matter. But, like, I think Ryan Day should actually keep that in mind and and maybe not, like, try to go for that because he said he doesn't really try to do things for, like, CJ's Heisman potential. But, like, not go for those numbers, but, like, make sure that you're doing enough to make the offense work so that, in turn, those numbers go up as well, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, obviously, those receiver numbers can't, 
can't be going up if the quarterback isn't playing well. And a, a quietly really good game for C.J. Stroud here, all, even despite yeah. all of the the poor call, play calls through three quarters. I mean, 26 of 33, 354 yards and a touchdown. Uh, he did have the one sack fumble, but he didn't throw a pick. Really good game for him. You know, he was solid. He didn't miss a, a bunch of throws. He made that really gorgeous throw to Mecca Ibuka late in the game through an absolute seed over the top. He, he made the plays he needed to. And yeah, like like kind of like we talked about, it, was, it wasn't really his fault that he didn't have more touchdown passes. They just didn't really put him in a real position to succeed for most of this game. But he made a ton well, of plays had, when he needed to. Yeah. Yeah, he had two passes that were downed inside the five he had the Emeka one and I think it was a Marvin Harrison one where he got tackled at like the two yard line that ended up being two of the the first Travion Henderson touchdown and the Mayan Williams touchdown those were both short touchdowns because of really nice passes that got them down there if those two if I believe it was Marv the other one was definitely the Emeka pass that you talked about if those two get into the end zone he has like five more yards which doesn't matter but two more touchdowns and he's 26 of 33 or thereabouts I don't remember if he threw after that for 360 yards and three touchdowns it's a completely different way that people outside who didn't watch the game look at these numbers and it goes from being a solid really good game to being like oh okay right he's the Heisman front runner he might not be the Heisman front runner anymore we'll have to wait and see what the odds if the odds change at all in Hendon Hooker's favor but like those two tackles that happened within an arm's length of the goal line really kind of changed I think the perspective that a lot of people are going to have on CJ Stroud's game against Penn State on Saturday. Yeah, and on top of that, they also had the the drive before halftime where there was a, a weird discrepancy mm-hmm. on timeouts. So could have been another touchdown pass there that ended on kind of a clock stoppage with, you know, they, they were on inside like the 10. Uh, could have yeah. been, been a fourth touchdown there. So, yeah, all kind of a game state way that he didn't score more touchdowns, but still a, a good stat line. He was efficient. He didn't turn the ball over. He made plays when he needed to. Um, not, nothing to, you know, he, he's had some really good games here recently that have really impressed me where he's kind of started out not so great and he's bounced back in a big way. And I think that's super important for, you know, a guy like him who's in his first year as a, as a starter, you know, you could get rattled early and kind of not bounce back from it. We've seen guys do that in the past, but CJ Stroud, while he's like kind of been, he, he's shown emotion on the field. Like he's clearly frustrated at times when he's not playing well, but he's done a really good job this year, especially in these last two weeks against Iowa and against Penn State of bouncing back and having really good performances, especially in fourth quarters when the game is on the line, when it's crunch time, he has been phenomenal. Yeah. And I've heard this from people who like, don't like seeing him frustrated in games. And I get that. Like you, you kind of want your quarterback to be this calm, cool, collected guy. But like, we've also seen Tom Brady absolutely cuss out teammates and coaches on the sideline. And no one really seen, I mean, they have some people had a problem with that, but like, they don't see that as a major detriment to Tom Brady's success. So like, I don't, I don't mind him getting frustrated on the sideline, especially when Ryan day is calling stupid ass plays. But like, even when it, when you know, wide receivers aren't in the right place, or maybe he throws it bad. Like, I kind of like seeing him being passionate about it. I like seeing him being frustrated, being him invested, because it, it just shows you how important this is to him. Like, I, I actually think that's a good thing. And I understand the converse of that and people not liking it. But like, to me, that's a that's a plus. And I think that can only help um, down the stretch when you are starting to see Ohio State play better teams. And that'll help with the preparation. That'll help with the focus. That'll help with the intensity. I think those are good traits for a quarterback at Ohio State to have. Yeah, Tony Gerdeman this morning tweeted out a stat. 
Um, when Ohio State's trailing in the fourth quarter or the game is only separated by one score, C.J. Stroud is 65 for 90 for 900 yards, seven touchdowns, one pick over his Ohio State career. So those are certainly numbers good? you want. You're, it's pretty solid. 72% and, and seven touchdowns, 900 yards is, is pretty solid for me. I'll take okay. that in the fourth quarter of the game on the line. You. I but, appreciate you translating that for me. Yeah, we, we've buried the lead enough here. Let's let's talk about what everyone wants to talk about. The JT Tweemaloau coming out party. My just God. one of the most unbelievable performances I've seen an individual college football player have on really either side of the ball here. Um, had the the two picks as a defensive end, one of which went back for a touchdown. He tipped a third pass that was intercepted by Zach Harrison. He had a sack fumble where he st- kind of st- he, he Joey boasted the guy. He Joey boasted an offensive mm-hmm. lineman into Sean Clifford and then recovered the fumble himself. Just and that it, was almost the, that was almost more athletic than the interception return for the touchdown because he somehow not only knocked the ball out but then was. I don't know, flexible or or alert or twitchy enough to then bounce on it before anybody else. Like that was super impressive to me as well. Yeah, I mean, it was just unbelievable to watch this guy play. He was he was everywhere. He was every time Ohio State needed a big play, he had it as well. Um, he also had three tackles for loss in this game and two total sacks, including that sack fumble. So just a, a ridiculous stat line for JT Tomaloa. And this is a guy that, you know, obviously came with a lot of hype, former five-star prospect. We've been waiting for both he and, and Jack Sawyer to kind of have their, their coming out party. And they've, they've both been solid, but they haven't really put up the stats to prove it. This is this is a big-time stat game. This one really fills the stat sheet for Tomaloa here. It shows why Ohio State went all out to get this kid and why they, you know, they showed up to the airport in, in Hawaiian shirts and whatnot <laughs> to make sure he came here. Seems like the effort was certainly worth it with the the, the performance he put on here. And just for... You know, he, he was everywhere. Like, it wasn't just rushing the passer. He is a defensive end, and he's out here getting multiple interceptions in a football game. It's just, it was crazy yeah. to watch. I, I, I just, I can't even put into words how, like, special this performance was in, in a game of this magnitude where Ohio State really needed a spark. He provided it. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Aside from having six total tackles, the rest of his stat line could be an entire year for a defensive end. You know, for a sophomore defensive end at that, you know, two sacks, three tackles for loss, two interceptions, a pass breakup, a forced fumble, a fumble recovery. Like, that is something you would not be shocked to see a starting defensive end have for an entire season. It wouldn't be a great season, but, like, it's a moderately successful season. So it, it absolutely is bonkers. And there's a reason, like you said— that Ohio State was able and willing to wait for him to make up his mind. If you remember, like he waited until the summer, until July to make his decision. One, because he was the number four player in the country and he could do whatever the hell he wanted. But two, what it really came down to is was because he was in Washington, 
He also played basketball. Everything was disjointed because of COVID. So seasons got pushed back. He didn't want, he went straight from football season into basketball. And I might be getting some of these wrong and some things might have been canceled. So forgive me if I'm wrong, but for the general gist of it was, is that things got moved around because of COVID. He didn't want to be taking visits while he was in season, especially because obviously so many of the places he was going to be visiting were far away. So he just waited till basketball was over. He went on his visits. He took his time. He's a thoughtful, intelligent young man. And he took his time and waited till July, just a few weeks before he had to start fall camp. And it worked out. And Ohio State waited because he is this good. And I think you're 100% right about him and Jack Sawyer. They have been, I think, good. I mean, I think that they are, are you know, really solid defensive ends in the Big Ten already before even this game from JT. And will they ever get to that next level of Bosa and, and Chase Young consistency? I don't know, but this certainly shows at least that JT is capable of that. And I think Jack Sawyer has proven that he has that ability as well. He's just being used a little bit differently. Um, we'll see what happens next year when they are both legitimately the 100% starters with Zach Harrison gone. But like, I, look, I don't know how you cannot just watch what he did yesterday and not just have him on the field all the time. I know that's not what Larry Johnson does, but I tweeted this out from the Landgren account. Like, uh, fine, rotate him. Jack and Zach as defensive ends. You can throw in a Jack or however you want to move those guys around. Leave Teron Vincent and Mike Hall in there. Maybe rotate into Leek Williams, uh, who had a pretty decent game yesterday as well with uh, with five sacks, including a or five tackles, including a sack. But just leave them. Like I, I understand that Larry likes to rotate, but there's no reason that those six guys should not be the only ones that are seeing a lot of play. Like Javante Jean Baptiste, love you, dude. But I'm good. Um, Jerron Cage, thank you for your service. But like, yeah, leave the other six in. And there's no reason JT should be off the field for more than a breather as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, this defensive line as a whole this season has been honestly really, really good. I, I think they have a lot of guys who are very versatile in their skill sets. We, we've talked a long time now about a guy like Zach Harrison who came in as his five-star defensive end. Hasn't really done a ton in the sack department, but he's always been great against the run, and that's why we've seen a little bit of him shifting to defensive tackle this season. And he's put together, you know, especially these last two games, a really good year. And I think, you know, a guy like JT Tumalao is going to be a similar player to that of Zach Harrison. I think he's a little bit better of, of a guy at getting after the quarterback, but he's been really solid against the run. I think he could do a little bit of everything. These guys aren't, you know, a guy like Chase Young was really just a pure sack artist. He wasn't bad against the run, but that's what he did. He got after the quarterback and he got sacks. These guys, I think, are more well-rounded th than that. Maybe not more well-rounded than Chase Young, but they have a, a more varied skill set and they're not really dominant in one area, but they're very good at a bunch of different things. I think you're seeing that uh, from JT Tumala, you're seeing that from Zach Harrison, you're seeing a little bit of that from Jack Sawyer as well. The defensive tackles have continued to be excellent. Obviously, we know what Mike Hall has been this year. You, you mentioned Tyleek Williams. I thought he had a good game. Um, so the guys at the middle have been great as well, and I think that's been a, a big key in stopping the run this season. Kind of a, you know, if you're looking at this defense as a whole, a, a bit of an odd game. I don't really know how to how to take it from a, from a stats perspective. I mean, they obviously let up 31 points, which is the most that they've allowed this year, but there was just a lot of plays where they were, like, right there or there was a missed tackle here. Oh, that there. first touchdown. Yeah, that first yeah. touchdown. My Lord. Yeah, the tackling was not good, but, other than, like, there was a couple times where, like, they had the, the pocket collapsing and Sean Clifford just evaded it and got a pass out or they, they 
tipped a ball and it got caught by someone or Penn State made a dive and catch. There was that one play on the goal line on fourth down where Tommy Eichenberg nearly had the stop in the backfield, but the running back just slipped through his hands. So it felt like Ohio State was just right there all afternoon and they just weren't able to to get that final push. But overall, I mean, I think it's still like this defense is still worlds above what we saw last year. I don't think this letting up 31 oh God, to Penn yeah. State here is, is any cause for concern. I mean, really, that that last touchdown that, that Penn State got to not, to, you know, 44-24 looks a lot better. Penn State kind of got that last touchdown, their last driver. Ohio State just kind of said, like, oh, yeah, the game's over. I think they were kind of just done at that point. Defense was probably pretty exhausted. Um, but yeah, I think it's just, this was a good performance. The stats might not say it. They let up a lot of yards and Sean Clifford threw for 371 yards, but they forced another, what, four or five turn of four turnovers in this game. So they've got like 10 or so in their last two games. I think this defense is still really, really good. And this was a, a big test for them. They haven't really played a team that could, could pass the ball that well. We obviously saw Penn State do that a little bit with Parker Washington. He had 179 yard receiving and a lot of that came on the long 58 yard run, but um, I, I thought this was a good day for them. I think the cornerback could still use some work, but overall, I think this is still a really strong defense, and Jim Knowles deserves a ton of credit for the job he's done in turning this unit around. Yeah, it, and if you, you, you're, I think you're 100% right. Like the fourth quarter, obviously, that's when Ohio State turned on its afterburner. So it's not like you can just say, oh, well, the fourth quarter doesn't count for the defense because Ohio State went up big. But like when you look at like Sean Clifford's numbers and the Penn State offensive numbers, they weren't nearly as impressive coming into the fourth quarter. They had a total of 303 yards through three quarters, which is fine, but nothing like super. But they had 179 in the fourth quarter. Um, they had uh, Sean Clifford ended the day with 371, like you said, but he had 132 of those in the fourth quarter. A lot of them coming after the game was <laughs> shockingly and very quickly out of hand. So I think, again, like, the defense is good. Are they a top 10 defense, top five defense? I don't know. They played some pretty shitty offenses. So like, I don't know if they're actually that good um, or as good as their stats suggest, but they're like you said, light years better than they were last year. And this goes back to the thing that I talked about at the very beginning, Ryan day wanting to prove that his teams are not soft. As far as I'm concerned, I, I don't think there's any way you can say that this defense is soft. And to me, that is far more important than whether the offense is soft or not. Yes, do I want Ohio State's offense to be able to run the ball down Michigan's throat? Absolutely, I would love that. But if you're telling me you have to choose whether the offense is soft or the defense is soft, give me a soft offense with those wide receivers who can do basically whatever the hell they want on a football field any day of the week. Because the defense has proven that they might give up some yards. Jim Knowles has said that that is actually a part of his defense because they're going to be aggressive. They're going to give up chunk plays. Now, I don't think that that first touchdown is what he was talking about because there were two guys, a safety and a corner who should have made a tackle on that one before it went however many yards for a touchdown. But he's going to give up chunk plays because they're going to be aggressive. I am fine with that. But beyond that, like the defense, I think, is actually, I mean been pretty great Tommy Eichenberg is closing on a on a hundred tackles this season if you would have told me that I mean before the season started but especially before the Rose Bowl last year I would have laughed at you and told you to leave tough Borland Jr. alone but he's been great Steel Chambers Lathan Ransom Ronnie Hickman those guys are tough we talked about the defensive line um we don't need to go into more of that, but like the starters aside from the corners have been excellent and I don't think that the corners are bad I think they are rounding into form now as people are getting healthy. I don't think they're going to be great, but like that defense is really good. I think they're really tough. And that makes me excited on 
the possibility that Ryan Day can get out of his own way and just let the offense do what the offense does. And if he does, I think that there is absolutely every reason to believe that I'm going to be cashing this $100 bet that I made on Ohio State to win the national championship uh, and, and and making some money on that. Because if if he lets the offense cook, I think the defense is good enough to 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 help them win a national title. Yeah, you mentioned a guy like Tommy Eichenberg, 72 total tackles on the year, well on his way to 100. Would be I just looked back while you were talking, would be the first Ohio State player to have 100 tackles in a season since Raekwon McMillan in 2016. So it's been quite a while, and to see a guy like that kind of have the the rise that he's had since he landed at Ohio State, you know, we didn't think much of anything of these linebackers coming into the year. We were a little bit surprised that it was going to be, you know, Tommy Eichenberg, but he had that mm-hmm. big Rose Bowl. We didn't know how much to take of that because that game was a little bit weird. Well, he's coming to the season, and he's been dominant. He's been Ohio State's, you know, most consistent defensive player up the middle. Him and Steel Chambers have been a fantastic linebacker duo. You're talking about a guy with no hype and a guy that was a converted running back playing your linebacker position. And, yeah, I think all the safeties have been really good. Lathan Ransom has taken over so the starting Thorpe, spot. Thorpe he's take, semifinalist or whatever. Yeah, yeah, he's taken over the starting spot from Josh Proctor. I don't know if that's like Proctor injury thing, but we haven't really seen much of Josh Proctor of late. But Lathan yeah. Ransom's been awesome. Ron Hickman, like you said, has been good. Tanner McAllister's been solid in his own right. Um, so, really, the the only downside of this defense is the the cornerbacks. And like you said, it's not really that they're bad. They're just not I, – I think they're just looking bad by comparison because the rest of the defense has been so good. I thought they did – you know, obviously, they let up a lot of passing yards this game, but I thought they did a better job. They had a couple of, of costly penalties, but I don't think they really let up a ton. We didn't really hear much of – Denzel Burke's name called in this game, which is if you're a cornerback, is a good thing. Um, so that's good. I, you know, we're starting to see Jordan Hancock be worked back a little bit more. I thought J.K. Johnson had a bit of a a tough afternoon, so maybe yeah. we see more more of Hancock in the, late instead of J.K. and we see kind of Burke and Hancock as your two moving forward. It's interesting to see how that. If he's healthy, that I think that that's. I mean, Cam Brown is going to come back at some point. I think um, if you can get those three guys healthy at the end of November and heading into December and hopefully January, like. That's a that's an upgrade. They haven't had their three main cornerbacks healthy all year. I mean, even going back into camp, starting J.K. Johnson in the game against Penn State was never in the plans. And I have a lot of issues with the fact that Ohio State came into the season with just six scholarship cornerbacks. That's a whole nother topic for another day. But like if they get guys healthy, like I think the corners are actually fine. I don't think they're great, but I don't think they're horrible. So it, it'll be interesting to see if those guys do get healthy, because I think you're right. Hancock has looked decent in in limited action the last two games since coming back from injury. But like Burke is what Burke is. He he. I think he's been pretty good in coverage, really bad at the point of attack or at the point of 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 catch. I, I don't know if I have the right term there when the ball gets there. Um, but I think there's upside. There's reason to be cautiously cautiously optimistic for the cornerbacks moving forward even if like i know you do you have a lot of questions about their their coaching right now yeah and like i i do think that their ohio state's done a good job to sort of hide their deficiencies at cornerback jim Knowles has done a really good job of kind of disguising coverages we've seen the past couple years ohio state kind of just ran like a vanilla cover too and like you just kind of left your cornerbacks on island so if they were struggling you were going to get toasted I don't think that could really with the way Ohio State's playing defense right now especially with the three safeties on the field I think it's kind of hard to like the, these cornerbacks aren't winding up on islands very often they're they're not being tested in like you know one-on-one shots over the top and when they are that when that is happening they're not really getting beaten that way consistently so that's that's really what you'd worry about in that regard and, and like you said earlier you know Jim Knowles knows you're going to let up some, some plays in the game you're going to let up some yards but as long as you you know bend and don't break you don't let up touchdowns you'll still probably win the game more times than not especially when you have, a, you have an offense like Ohio State's um, but yeah, I don't know. I, the cornerback thing is interesting to me. I, I am I am questioning highly the the 
the coaching of Tim Walton. It was weird when they brought in these coaches that they took a guy in Perry Aliano yeah. who just came off having you know two ridiculous corners at Cincinnati and then moved him as the the safeties coach. And it's weird because Ohio State safeties are playing really really well, um, but the cornerbacks aren't. So I, I'm questioning the Tim Walton hire a little bit. Maybe he could he could sway me in, later in the year. I'm not fully. You know, fully, fully out. I could be one back if the corners start playing well, but I'm not. I'm not pleased thus far with his tenure. Let me ask you, what is it about it? Is it? Is it? Because, like we've said, the coverage has been pretty good. Or do you just chalk that up to athleticism and the stuff around the catch is the problem? What What is your issue with him? Because I am not smart. Like I, I'm an idiot. Like I don't know anything about like football technique, so I don't know. I just know that the corners haven't been good because we see them not make plays so what is it about tim walton's coaching is it just that they get burnt a lot like what's what what is your main issue with him as a coach because i'm just not intelligent enough to know the difference yeah i think my main issue is that the the problems the cornerbacks are having seems to be all of the same problem which leads me to believe it's a coaching issue and not a personnel issue where not getting better yeah and like you said like it's it's not that they're not playing coverage well but when the ball is in the air and the ball is like you're leaping for the ball they're either not timing their jumps correctly they're not turning their head around they're not making a good play on the ball and when you have you know multiple different players across multiple years making the same same exact mistake in in multiple games that leads me to believe it's a coaching issue so something they're being taught you know like you said at the point of catch um, something's going wrong there. I don't know where the disconnect is, but it, that's why it leads me to believe it's a coaching issue. Because if it was just, you know, if Denzel Burke had just had like, you know, a sophomore slump and he just wasn't playing well and it just is what it is, he, he wasn't as good as we thought he was, then that's one thing. But when it's when all of the corners are doing basically the same exact thing and it's happened repeatedly and it's been, you know, it's been better lately. Like they did have the PI in this game, but I thought overall Ohio State, you know, their, their corners were at least turning around a little bit more in this game, which is obviously what you want your corners to do in those scenarios. But yeah, that's why it leads me to believe it's a coaching issue. I've just, I don't know, I'm not really, really sold on on him yet um hasn't obviously done hasn't done much in the recruiting realm yet we haven't seen any big corners landed for ohio state just yet um but maybe that'll come he's obviously here as the first year but yeah i don't know i'm not ready to to kick him out there's other guys that are within this program that i want gone way sooner than tim walton but are we gonna um, talk about it are we gonna talk about that well, I, I think that is kind of the last point to bring up from this game and it's it's the it's the injury bug and it's Ohio State's just every week all of their players are hurt and I don't really know why what we're doing here like why is this happening to only Ohio State that they're missing so many stars I mean Jack Smith and Jigba got a, a hamstring injury in week one of the season and he still really hasn't actually played a game I don't really I don't count him as playing really any games this season since that first half against against uh Notre Dame you had Mayan Williams go down in this game with another Mayan Williams appeared to hurt his his hands his legs his, Dude, his head he, all of it in that play his finger look look I people were talking including Gus Johnson were talking about maybe tweaked his knee if you watch that thing and think that there was anything going on other than the fact that his finger was pointing the wrong effing way like maybe he hurt his knee too but dude's finger was pointing in a direction that a finger is not supposed to point and as he was walking off the field he was walking fine and a, and a trainer was holding his hand in the air so that he didn't have gravity impacting his hand i don't think that you can put this one on I don't know. Do you want me to say the coaches? <laughs> yeah, I mean, on, I, on I've, slandered him. I've slandered him on this podcast many a time. Yeah, I know you have. I edit it. So I hear you. Um, I don't think you can blame that one. But the fact that like both running backs, um, all the corners, I think that there I think that there is something to be said about the fact that Ohio State does seem to have guys 
that are having the same types of injuries over and over. I don't think in college football, especially power five, big time Ohio State level college football, you're going to avoid injuries. We all understand that's part of the game. But the fact that it's the same type of injuries, soft tissue injuries, um, ligament injuries, it, it does make you question whether or not the strength and conditioning program is evolving as the game evolves. And I think, you know, Mickey Marotti came to Ohio State as part of Urban Meyer's entourage and much like Urban Meyer refused to evolve in the second part of his Ohio State tenure, it kind of feels the same thing. The only person from Urban Meyer's squad, so to say, that it seems to have evolved is Mark Pantone. And he's evolved tremendously. And that's why Ohio State is still one of the best recruiting programs in the country. Um, I think you're right. I, I think that there's absolutely a question to be had. I am, again, an idiot. So I don't know anything about kinesiology or anything like that that would go into what strength and conditioning actually does um, and how it works with the body and how different athletes need different things. But it does seem to have a lot of question marks around it right now. Yeah, and especially because it seems like, I mean, the Ohio State is so tight-lipped with its injuries, we don't know the extent of a lot of these guys, but it right. seems like the vast majority of them are soft tissue injuries. So that, that to me, says conditioning is an issue. Um, and, and my issue with him has always been that he seems to want to, this is the same problem I had ironically with the Mets for a while, is that you're building players to be bodybuilders rather than athletes. You can't just go out there and tell guys to lift heavy weights and like you're going to get stronger. You have to... These guys have to build towards a, a goal. You have to build towards actually like playing the game of football, not just to be bigger and stronger. You know, you look at a guy this year like like Tyleek Williams. He looks like twice the size he did last year. He clearly doesn't look. You know, he he's not athletic as he was when he was a smaller build. He's gained a ton of of mass, and while he's probably a lot stronger, I don't think he's the same player that he was before he gained all that mass. You know, a guy like Julian Fleming has done a good job of adding weight and and maybe you know not losing as much of a step as maybe we thought originally. But I, I think a lot of these guys are probably playing at too high a weight. You don't need to be, you know, they, they're fitting a lot of round pegs into square holes here where you're just saying, oh, a linebacker has to be this weight and a, and a safety has to be this weight. It doesn't work the same anymore. Like guys are more versatile. You could have a safety that's a little bit undersized but could still hit hard because he's strong in the right areas. I just think that they could be doing a much better job. And yeah, like you said, it, it's sort of the... It's the outdated coach. It was Urban Meyer lost a step, never never adjusted, and and he you know kind of aged like a fossil. And I think the same is happening to to Mick Marotti. And I, I think the only yeah I think the only holdovers from the Urban Meyer regime are now Pantone and I guess uh, Larry Johnson. Is that the only guys left on staff? Uh, Kevin Wilson would be as well, yeah, um, and obviously um, his son in law is still the quarterback coach. So I guess that is I entirely forgot that he was on the staff. <laughs> I haven't heard his name in weeks. No, but like every time you hear it, it's it's like a recruit saying that like he's the reason he's coming to Ohio State. Oh, recruits love him. He's he's apparently yeah. doing a great job, and I can't argue with yeah. the quarterback play. We know like ninety percent of that's Ryan Day, but yeah, can't but argue still, with him. I mean, yeah, yeah. Tony I mean, Alford, I, Tony Alford is an Ohio is a true. Urban Meyer guy as well. Yeah. So it's like a lot of the offense is still Urban Meyer guys, but they're not the longtime guys who like came from Florida as well. Yeah, I think my only other staff gripe is just, you know, Parker Fleming is I don't like hate him as much as some other guys do, but like why do you, hiring a full-time special teams coach See, I think is I silly. See, I disagree. I disagree. I think I think having a full-time special teams coach is a good thing. I just want somebody who is better. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> because that, the special the teams if have not good, been great. If you're going to do it, your special teams better be incredible. 
And if it's not, then get a new guy. I like if yeah, it's give one me a thing Beamer. to have it. Give me yeah, just give me somebody whose last name is Beamer to run the special teams. Yeah, it's one thing to have it, but to have it and also have issues on special teams is simply inexcusable. So that's probably I my agree. main that's my bigger gripe there. Not as not the position less as a whole, although I would maybe you know it would be nice to have maybe another, you know, defensive staffer instead of a part special teams. But if you're gonna have it, your special teams better be pretty damn good. Um, yeah, I do think I do think, though, that having Jim Knowles also be the linebacker coach and also having Kevin Wilson be the tight end coach or whatever he's he's doing, like, I think that actually makes up for the fact that you moved a guy to special teams. So I think the fact that your coordinators are actually leading rooms as well might make up for it. But I, I agree, like the fact that we continue to see Ohio State struggle in pretty much every phase of special teams except for punting because Jesse Murko is an Australian god following the lines uh, of other punters coming from the land down under. So like other than him, like Ohio State kind of struggles in most in most uh, special teams areas, even though we've seen Ruggles make some pretty big kicks. He's still missed a couple field goals this year, which is I think I think he's already missed more than he did all of last year. Right. Yeah, I, I think he's probably been asked to kick a little bit more these past couple weeks than he'd been sure. accustomed to. But, but he yeah, missed his I first think... one of the season. Yes, he did miss his first one. Did he? Did he miss one in this game? I don't remember. Yes, he, did, he did. Yeah. Um. Well, actually, no. I, oh, it's PATs. Got it. Uh. Yeah. yeah. But he, he, you know, he's made a bunch. It's just that he has missed a couple that we're not really accustomed to him making. Um. I think overall he's been solid. But yeah, I, I just and obviously Jesse Murko has been very good as well. Um. But yeah, I just think that if you're, I, I think too, like the the defensive special teams has been good. Obviously, the the huge penalty on the field goal is inexcusable. But I, I think like kickoff return wise, their their coverage downfield has been excellent. So I guess that's. One feather in Parker Fleming's cap, but that's all I'm giving him. Uh, and then, yeah, I, I think other than that, I think those are really kind of what we took away from this game. I don't think we're going to learn much for several weeks now because Ohio State's opponents the next three weeks are really nothing to write home about. But this was a, a good litmus test for Ohio State, and it wasn't always pretty, but I think they did pass the test at the end of the day. Yeah, I, I think that there's something here, and I'm, I might write something about this later this week. I think it's important as Ohio state gets ready to go into the game after Thanksgiving and then hopefully into a big 10 championship game and hopefully into a college football playoff game that Ohio state fans keep these last two games in the back of their minds. We have a tendency to be very much um, like the dog from up where we only pay attention to what's right in front of us and we forget about everything else. And like you, you see, a squirrel, and then you completely lose attention to what has just happened and you follow something else. Against Northwestern, against Indiana, against Maryland, Ohio State is going to look great on both sides of the ball, I assume. I think Maryland actually will be a really good test because they are really the only passing team that Ohio State will face all season. I think that'll actually be really interesting for the corners to see how much they've improved by then. But Ohio State should win all of those games by at least three to four touchdowns. Then we're going to go into to the game, and I think that Ohio State fans are going to be like, okay, Ohio State's back. They're going to completely dominate and destroy that team up north, and they very well might, and I think they are absolutely capable of doing that. But I hope that we as fans don't think that the problems are going to automatically work themselves out because Ohio State is beating the crap out of inferior opponents. I think like we did that against Notre Dame and thought, oh, okay, the issues that Ohio State had were completely solved because they were able to run the ball against Notre Dame in the fourth quarter. Then 
they played a whole bunch of bad teams, including teams like Wisconsin and Michigan State that we thought might be good at the beginning of the season. And then they went up against a really good defense against Iowa. And you're like, oh, wait, they didn't fix those problems. They just played bad teams. So I don't want people to be all of a sudden surprised when we play Michigan and they're back to having issues that weren't seen for the past three weeks. I hope that Ryan Day takes this time over these next three weeks to fix those issues. Um, But I also don't want fans to be shocked and appalled and angry and calling for people's heads on pikes when the rivalry game is a slog again because Ohio State can't do it at once at will. So maybe that's just me telling myself not to get worked up about it in a month or whenever that is, less than a month at this point. But like, I I know that's what's going to happen because I know Ohio State fans and they're going to think that everything is better because they beat three bad teams before they play the biggest game of the regular season. Oh, I'm fully ready to to proclaim Ohio State back when they beat Northwestern like 73 to six. But no, no, no. Yeah, I I do think you're right. I think you you have to take a lot of the the lesser games with a grain of salt. These are the games that actually matter are these ones against the better teams. Um, I I don't really like I, that. That game is going to be something else at Ohio State Michigan game. It's obviously what this whole season has kind of been leading to is the the rematch in that game. I imagine both teams will be eleven zero going into that game. Although I, I think the Michigan playing Illinois the week before uh, might might be getting a little slept on. Not that, so that fast, could be, my friend. Not could be so an interesting fast, game. Could be an interesting game. I, I think the styles of those two teams could be quite interesting, and I, I'm very I'm excited to watch that one. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I think I was talking to my friend about this the other day. I, I think the fact that a lot of Ohio State's issues seem to be more on on play calling and coaching rather than personnel is is what you'd obviously prefer. Like it's yes, one thing if yes. you just don't have good players to do what you want to do. Ohio State has all the talent in the world. They just need to get some scheme, scheme up some stuff a little bit better. So I think that's if you're going to have an issue, you'd rather have that one. Like if you're a team like Northwestern next weekend, there is nothing you could do scheme wise to to make your players any better. <laughs> like you could scheme up some stuff to look good, but you can't make your players any better. Ohio State has the good players. They just need to do a little bit better stuff with them. And I and I think this is I've said nice things about Jim Harbaugh occasionally, but this is going to be probably the nicest thing I've ever said about him. Right now, Michigan looks every bit the equal of Ohio State, and you could argue, which I will not, but you could argue that they look better than Ohio State. The thing is, they don't have nearly the talent that Ohio State has. They've got good talent. They don't have nearly the talent that Ohio State does. So what's the difference? Some of it is just kismet and and chemistry and things work, certain players in certain positions. I get it. But a lot of it is coaching. And I think you're 100% right. So far through this season and last season as well, if we're being quite honest, Screech Power's cousin, Jim Harbaugh, has been a better coach for his team than Ryan Day has for Ohio State. Now, that is not, again, me saying that I want Jim Harbaugh to be Ohio State's coach. I would very well possibly turn in my alumni club membership. But he's done a really good job with that team who does not have nearly as much athletic ability that Ohio State has. If Ryan Day can get his head out of his ass in terms of the play calling, I don't think it's a very close game. If he can't, I think we're in for a, a battle on November, what is that, 24, 26? November 26th. That'll be that'll be a tough game if, if Ryan Day can't get out of his own way. But all credit where credit is due, Harbaugh has, has finally, after however many years, figured out how to coach his team to the best of their ability and get the most out of them. If Ohio State is doing the same thing, they are going to get far more than the skunk bears do. So I, I'm i hoping that Ryan Day can figure it out over these next few weeks and go into that game full 
guns blazing because if he does, it's going to be a blowout. If he doesn't, Jim Harbaugh has his team in position to pull. I, I don't even know if it'll be an upset at that point, to be quite honest with you. Uh, they might be favored heading into that game. So 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 we will see. We will we will definitely see what happens in less than a month's time. Yeah, I think Jim Harbaugh, what he's done a good job of is kind of recognizing what his team is. Like he's not yeah. he he sees what his team is on paper and he he plays to their strengths. They have a good offensive line, they have a very good running back, so they run the football. You know, they don't have an elite passing attack. JJ McCarthy is good. He's he's efficient, but he's not elite. He's not at the level of someone like CJ Stroud. They don't have the elite wide receiver talent they that Ohio State does outside of maybe Ronnie Bell. So they run the football and they do it well. Ohio State has kind of been kind of it's kind of the exact opposite of what we just said Ohio State came into this game trying to do. We we see all this wide receiver talent Ohio State has. And while they do have, you know, solid offensive line and good running backs, obviously the, the bread and butter of this team is CJ Stroud in the passing offense, but they come out in these big games and they try to establish the run and it doesn't work. So I think a lot of it is just realizing what you have and playing to your own strengths. And I think a lot of the times that Ryan Day kind of gets in his own head and forgets that his team is, is really a passing team. I think a lot of what you said is correct of trying to change the narrative that Ohio State is a finesse team. You want to show that you can run the ball in, in, in power situations, but if you're going to do that, you at least have to draw it up so that everyone doesn't know what you're doing. You have to be less obvious. You have to be more creative in the run game, and you should really just just pass the ball and let that set up your run game on its own. So I think that's kind of the big takeaway. I, obviously, we'll have a lot of time between now and then. I'm sure the Ohio State-Michigan comparisons will continue until that, that game is played because I don't think, you know, other than that Illinois game for Michigan, neither of these teams play anything of substance until that November 26th or whatever it was uh, weekend. But yeah, I mean it's it's been a it's been a fun season. Ohio State looks good. Um, their defense is certainly much improved from last year. The offense just keeps on humming. Uh, we'll see what happens with you know Ohio State's injuries. I don't imagine that even if he was healthy, that I don't know if uh, what they're gonna do this this next week. I don't imagine like we're obviously gonna have a preview episode, but I don't imagine a lot of these guys that are even like a little bit dinged up will play against Northwestern. I don't think they'll really no. need those guys since Northwestern hasn't won a game on U.S. soil, but. Um, nonetheless, I'm, I'm excited to see what happens the rest of the way. They have some things to correct. They have a couple of games that they could use to correct them and we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that these next three weeks, at least the next two weeks should be get right games for guys who maybe have come back to the lineup after injuries and then opportunities for guys to rest who need it. Uh, I, I would like to see a full complement of, of players who are capable of being on the field against Maryland. Because like I said, I think that passing attack will show us um, something about this defense that we haven't seen the rest of the year. I don't think that they're you know, nearly as good as some teams that Ohio State might play in the playoffs, but they're pretty good. They're pretty good passing attack, especially if uh, Tuolio is, is healthy for that game. Um, but I think you're right. These next two weeks, who cares? Just just get the wins, win by 30, get the starters out by the fourth quarter, don't get anybody hurt, and just move on. Yeah, that's really the biggest thing. Stay healthy these next couple of weeks and, and continue racking up the W's. But uh, Matt, I think that'll be it. That'll be it for us this week. Thanks for hopping on it in place of uh, Josh, who, like you said, is lost somewhere in the mountains. Um, he will probably be back for the preview. We'll see what happens. Maybe the, the mountains will take him forever, uh, but hopefully not. Uh, I do like having Josh around. We do miss him. So shout out to Josh. Um, but yeah, that that's going to be it for us this week. Uh, we will have obviously all of our usual post game and from from uh, Penn State and as well as pregame stuff for Northwestern this week over on the the LandGrantHolyLand.com website. So be sure to check out all of our written content. Be sure to like, rate, view, subscribe, all the things the podcast asks you to do. And for Matt Tamanitti, I am Gene Ross, and as always, go Bucks.